Good afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of Navarra FM, broadcast on London's number one radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for joining us. You can find all previous shows, along with just about everything else, on our website, navarramedia.com, and can maintain daily contact with any of our social media outlets, channels. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr and YouTube. And you can, of course, join today's discussion on the Twitter hashtag, hashtag Navarra FM. Today's discussion is informed primarily by a piece on Navarra Wire, the BuzzFeed of the left, as it's been referred to most recently. And that was written by Adam Ramsey, who's joined us along with Amelia Wormack. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Uh, and that piece was called Nine Things You Might Not Expect from the Greens' EU Manifesto. Um, so you're here, uh, and I guess you're going to try and tell people why they should vote uh, and why the Green Party's different to all the others. I'm going to start with you, Adam. Before we delve into these, these big questions, we'll pick up from that piece, and I want you to sort of make your pitch for voting Green not generally, but specifically for these elections in May, because as we know, and as the listeners, I hope, know or will come to know over the course of the show, these European elections have a very specific set of dynamics, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two main things that these European elections are about. The first is what the European Union and European Parliament actually does, which we don't talk about much in British politics, but there are lots of important things. I think the most obvious of those at the moment is the uh, Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, the eu US trade deal. The EU negotiates all of our trade deals. Uh-huh. But, you know, just to sum it up, what this trade deal is proposing to do is uh, make it almost impossible to renationalise anything at all. It'll allow private companies to sue governments for any regulation which affects their anticipated profits. So if a government wants to introduce any workers' rights, it wants to do anything at all, it might protect the environment, it might protect anything at all, and a company, a, any corporation from the state, says, no, we thought we were going to make some money from exploiting people in that way. You're banning it, so uh, we want the cost that we could have, the profits we think we could have made from that. So this is coming in a new trade deal. Yep. It's a transatlantic trade deal. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the European Commission that has competence and oversight on it is. And trade so, policy, not the European Parliament, which is what people are voting for. That is quite right. So the European Parliament's role is far too restricted. The EU is not nearly as democratic as it should be, and that's one thing Greens have always fought for. But the European Parliament's role is to hold the Commission to account. So it's the best, uh, it's the best chance we have to say to the Commission that, no, we don't think it's OK to be both accepting these trade deals on our behalf, which are going to affect us, but also it's worth remembering, as I was saying, this is exactly what we've done to countries in the global south for decades, and, um, and we've also got to stand up against that. That's trade, that's just one thing. Um, the EU is also responsible for a whole range of, uh, of bits of policy, and, um, you know, it's, the EU is the world's biggest free trade zone. Um, one thing the Greens have been absolutely clear about is that free trade and that free market capitalist route is entrenched is not the route to prosperity or justice in our society. Um, and that's what Green MEPs have been, have been fighting against for, uh, for you know, a good couple of decades now in the European Parliament. So, so that's the first thing, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm going on a bit. Um, is no, that, it's very in- insightful. Is that the policies of the European Parliament, we don't talk about them much, but this is where we do our global politics, and that we've sort of outsourced our global politics to the EU. The only way we talk about it is through the European elections in theory, and then we always get distracted in the European elections by the second thing, which is the dynamics and domestic politics of this race. Um, and I'm always reminded of this, of this quote from Orwell in The Road to Wigan Pier, where he says, uh, there shall either be a so- proper socialist party in this country or fascism is coming. Not the fascism of the shaved Nazi guerrilla, but an altogether more British kind of fascism, the fascism of the culture of policemen, the fascism of the lion of the unicorn. And I think when we look at the state of British politics today, 70, 80 years later, that quote is terrifyingly apt. That what we're seeing is, is the rise of 
UKIP, and you know, UKIP aren't a 1930s traditional fascist party. They're a very different, they're a British sort of fascism. They're a divide and rule, but do it with a cup of tea and a pint of beer and a nice smiley face kind of fascism. And, uh, and the response of the mainstream is to accept their divide and rule politics and entirely refuse to challenge them and to follow my leader off that cliff. And, uh, and so what we need, exactly as Orwell says, is a proper socialist party. And, and, you know, the language has changed. We don't talk about socialism in the way they did in the 30s anymore. But we need a party which is willing to say to people that the cause of the housing crisis, the cause of depression in wages, the cause of rising inequality, the cause of the total failure to deliver for people in this country those basic things that they need, is not people moving here, it's not foreigners, it's not gay people, it's not women, it's the capitalist system. And, um, and that party, very clearly, I think, is the Green Party. Amelia, so Adam's outlined specifically trade, but yep, also, yep. more generally, a, a message that it's not migrants or... Um, one might say that the most sort of exploited and more vulnerable elements within society that have caused the crisis, but it's structural elements uh, inherent within the capitalist mode of production, as we so often say on this show. Why else should people vote for the Green Party in, in these May elections? I think with the Green Party, we really base our policies on um, well-researched um, ideas that look into um, the facts and figures about the situation rather than pandering to popular politics just to gain the vote. We really understand what the cause and effect of our um, of our policies are and try and use it to try and make a difference for the common good and use it to make a difference for people, for the environment, which therefore will feed into things like a, a stronger, um, stable economy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a kind of technocratic argument, right? And technocratic solutions are need, needed things like climate change and, uh, you know, changes we see in the competition of capital. So things like automation, robotisation, that leads to chronic under and unemployment, right? Clearly, the solutions to those things require, you know, technocratic solutions. That doesn't really inspire people, does it? I mean, that, if that's the message, we can, we've got the technical answers to the crisis of capitalism, to the, the crisis of, you know, just whether we can reproduce the ecology, the basic fundaments of, you know, life on Earth. People want to be inspired. They want a vision. Can the Green Party offer that? I think is there a bigger message? The Green Party are offering that. So the Green Party is the fourth largest party in the European Parliament mm. um, because we've got Greens from all across Europe. So, I mean, with these policies, it's like only Greens have that vision. Only Greens can, only Greens have, and only Greens will. We have been delivering these um, policies in the European Parliament and we've been um, in ensuring that... Um, these policies are being implemented all across Europe. Yeah. So the lot of work that we're doing for um, the youth guarantee, for um, unemployment, and of course the environment, and um, we've been doing a lot of um, a lot of work around um, things like bankers' bonuses mm -hmm. and changing the systems that the very systems that we're talking about that um, benefit the few mm -hmm. instead of the majority. Mm -hmm. And um, we, I think that the inspiration comes from the fact that we've been providing that voice already. And although at the moment we we might not have, we've only got two MEPs in the European Parliament from the UK, which with just a rise of 1.6% of the vote, we can treble to six. Mm. Um, that voice has been so much stronger as a result of being um, a, an international movement mm. that has been making these changes that we've been seeing. OK, so, I mean, I'll rephrase it. You said policies, right? Yeah. I, mean, I don't doubt for one second the Green Party has excellent policies, far, far more substantial and uh, praiseworthy than anything else any other parties are offering. But the question is, do they have the politics? UKIP are looking to 
win this election in style, possibly. I think that's I think that's a plausible claim to make now. People are saying that Labour can still win it. I don't think that's the case. I think UKIP will finish first, and I think by some margin, and that's not off the back of policies, that's off the back of politics. Mm. Nigel Farage very recently said that he couldn't really recollect nine-tenths of the election manifesto they offered to the public in the 2010 general election. So it's clear that policies won't matter in that success that UKIP are almost inevitably going to face. So what kinds of politics can the Green Party offer? Is it a sub- you said you said the word socialist. I don't think many people are aware of that. I mean, you've been on the doorsteps more than Adam has recently because you obviously uh, listeners should know that you're a candidate. You'll be running for the European yeah, Parliament. Yeah. You're eighth on the list of the Green Party, I yeah, believe. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So what's the feedback you get on the doorstep then when you talk about policies? Because people want to hear about politics, no? Well, I think that it's um, you do need to be talking about providing the voice, the, um, the alternate voice of the left. You've got all these um, old Labour people who have been disillusioned by what the Labour Party has been providing to the UK and within Europe, and actually showing. Um, demonstrating the fact that we are the alternative left party that hasn't lost their integrity. Um, again, to, to, to pander to popular politics, we haven't lost our integrity um, to try and b- win the votes in quite the same way that, that Nigel Farage has by mm. making it um, a, an election about personalities mm. rather than having the, um, the strong, the integrity of wanting what you want to deliver. Because of both, can't you? I mean, why are they mutually exclusive? I mean, FDR was a huge personality and the New Deal transformed American politics. I mean, why, Adam? Well, I mean, I think to an extent, Aaron, you're quite right. And a, a big problem that Greens always have is um, getting caught up in policy rather than politics. Um, and so, I, you know, I've over the last few weeks been canvassing across the country every year from Ullapool, the furthest northwest town on the mainland UK, uh, to, to Oxford. And I find the same thing, um, which is people are angry. Um, they're angry both because mainstream politics has failed to deliver for them the basic as you say, Aaron, um, requirements for social and economic reproduction. They're also worried, you know. Yeah, yeah there is 30% of the country, maybe in England and in Scotland, 2%, um, who, who might vote UKIP. But there's another 70% who are terrified by that, or at least, you know, a good chunk of them are scared by that and very worried at the rise of what they see as divide and rule politics trying to scare them into voting against their neighbour. And... What I've been finding on the doorstep is when we say to people, unlike what you know any of the mainstream parties willing to say, when we say to people, you know, stand up to the immigrant bashers, don't let them blame your neighbours for a crisis they didn't cause, that message is hugely well received. You know, we've um, we've been putting posters up in Oxford round colleges saying, you know, stand up to the immigrant bashers, and those, you know, those those messages, you know, as you say, Aaron, that's not it's not about policy, that's about politics. It's about saying to people you know, very clearly, uh, this is what we stand for. We're not going to let them divide and rule. Um, and, and, and when we do that, people are very receptive. You know, I was out last night uh, delivering leaflets around the housing, around the housing estate with um, the words on the front, it's time to end the housing crisis. Um, just some big letters in the middle, all our detailed policies for how to do it. And uh, I think Greens do well when we understand exactly the lesson that you remind us of that it's about politics, not policy. Um, you need the policy. Well, policy to back helps, it up. right? But policy I mean, helps. <laughs> you need, you know, long term, you yeah. need the policy to back it up. Yeah. And and you can't. This is something the far right haven't got. No, this is something the far right hasn't got. I mean, UKIP, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. We know and, that. We know. We know yeah. they haven't got a solution to housing crisis. Yeah, exactly. It's the, but, it's the mess they'll create in the twenty years intervening between now and then. People find, people find that out. Sorry, go on. But 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 um, but but, uh, but I think you're quite right that also um, you know, there's the what matters is being absolutely clear about where you stand. Look, what, UKIP or the Tea Party? It's a culture war 
party. And there's a culture war that's brewing in this country. It always was what happens after recessions. And UKIP represent one side of that culture war. And what they haven't got at the moment is someone else standing up and saying, well, we're the other side of that culture war and you can go away. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think that the question in this election, the big question, this, uh, an interesting one for British politics, in England at least, in, in Scotland it's a different question, but the question in England is whether the Greens can articulate uh, ourselves as the other side of that culture war. Um, whether we can be clear and standing up and saying, no, this party does not represent us. It doesn't have any of the solutions this country needs. It's scapegoating our neighbours for problems caused by the super rich and by capitalism, and we're not going to have any of it. And where Greens do that and articulate that message, we do very well. Mm-hmm. Um, in the county council elections last year in Oxford, where I live, we got our friend elected with a 20% swing towards him by going around central Oxford, which obviously is a specific demographic, but there's lots of places like it, saying stand up to the immigrant bashers. Where, where, where we don't manage to articulate that message, then, you know, as Orwell puts it, we shall either have a proper socialist country in this party or fascism is coming. Um, and that's the interesting question in this election. And, um, you know, you, you said before we were going to try and persuade people to vote Green, and that's my basic message. You know, England is in the middle of Osborne's austerity revolution. It's got three main parties capitulating to the right, trying to blame the £3,000 average reduction in personal wealth for the average person in this country, the average household in this country, rather, since 2010. It's trying to blame that. It's accepting the narrative that the blame for that lies at the door of the most weak and the most vulnerable. And, uh, and we need to get our act together. And, you know, of course, electoral politics isn't the only solution to that. I'm never, you know, we need to do all the things we can to organise against that. But, yeah, voting in these European elections and voting for the one party which is consistent in articulating a different message and a different explanation for the causes of the problems in this country is absolutely vital. Mm. I mean, I mean, you Sorry. I, I was just going to add to that, actually, because um, I also think that... Um, the fact that we work at the grassroots as well, that it's like uh, it's, we're run by volunteers and we, we provide that opportunity by um, being different because we are not only working in electoral politics, but we're campaigning and we're on the ground campaigning. And we've done, we've moved from in Lambeth, where I live, ensuring that sheltered housing isn't, hasn't been shut down and, and protecting those people to campaigning against bedroom tax, but at a very grassroots level. I think that that's... Um, like provides a little bit of a, a difference to what the Green Party mm-hmm. um, provides and, and the Green Party's voice because it's it's not just the voice of these leaders but the voice of the people and their members. Yeah, I mean, I was just gonna I was gonna say to you because we know that you just told the listeners you're in Lambeth. Yes, we know yeah. that UKIP I think in the last mayor election came fifth, sixth. I mean, we know those politics aren't particularly popular here, and okay, but Boris is the the mayor. But we know that you know those generic formula national politics aren't that popular in London. So, what do you hear when you talk to people about you know how many people say to you, "I'm going to vote UKIP," for instance, in these European elections in Lambeth? In um in Lambeth, actually, not that many. Mm. Um, but there have been quite a few people on the streets that do say that they vote UKIP. But I think it's the um, they they do feel very preyed upon in terms of the the fear mongering around the policies because people are being affected by this recession. We can't overlook the fact mm. that there are people um, whose 
whose um, wages are being squeezed by the fact that inflation is going up more than their wages, that they're, they, they are trying to find housing and unable to. There are so many problems that we need to ta- like we really need to, to make a difference on. And, and they're providing a solution. Mm. They're providing the wrong solution. And they're providing a solution that, um, as Adam says, means that we're creating these, this divide in rural politics. Mm. And I think we really need to show that there are better solutions and that um, almost that we've got an antidote to these problems, mm. that, it's, it's not the, um, it, that it's not people moving into this country that's the problem. We've got to look at the big businesses and we've got to look at the fact that those businesses aren't paying tax and be proving that it's not the people at the, at the bottom of the, the ladder uh-huh. that are causing these problems and what, it's the people at the top. What's your killer line on the doorstep? If you've got 20 seconds, I mean, I've, I've, I was always told that if you can't convince somebody in a lift... You know, uh, mm-hmm. in an escalator, you know, on a, you know, journey on a lift, you know, 10, 10 to 30 seconds, you haven't got much chance of persuading them. So what's your killer line? What's, your, what's the one that's found most success for you? you I'm I sure think... you've had lots of practice. <laughs> it's different for local and European elections. For these European elections. For the European yeah. election, elections, I always go for the, um, the, the fact that the Greens are making a, a different... Only Greens have, only Greens can, and only Greens will, and using all the evidence of what you're talking about to back that up. So from everything from youth policy to um, employment to mm-hmm. climate to um, even issues around benefits and, and a lot of the, the rhetoric that we're using in the country at the moment um, all these issues you can you can find something that the greens have been doing in europe that that is making that difference to the people on the doorstep adam you were talking about a culture war i think that's a great way of putting it and i think actually the rise of the conservative movement in the united states particularly the conservative legal movement is a real it's got a lot to teach people on the left in terms of how you build first resistance and then hegemony i think far more than something like uh what's this guy that all the unite activists cite and Alinsky? Uh, yeah, Saul Alinsky. I mean, this is Mickey. Alinsky lost, you know. Stephen Teller's rise well, conservative legal movement, I think. Alinsky won quite a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah, I know, but it wasn't. Okay, it's not George Mason University providing, you know, the Supreme Court justices. It's not hegemony in the mainstream media, whatever. Anyway, Stephen Teller's rise legal conservative movement, far more useful than Alinsky's rules for radicals. It's a smart two of Bob's worth. Um, but in terms of that culture war, what institutions does the Green Party have? Because you look at UKIP, I look at UKIP, and the reason for the success isn't because there's some outstanding electoral formation with the Green Party. It's not even Farage. I mean, this is essentially a political outgrowth of a media narrative that's been dominant now for 15 years within the major print press in this country, mm-hmm. uh, less so television news, although uh, BBC Question Time, this will be broadcast on Friday, this was last night, were hosting Farage for the 15th time. Against Caroline Lucas. Yeah. But he's also, you know, this is the only, he's the only sort of person running for European Parliament who's allowed to make a, you know, to present his arguments in public on a public service broadcaster in the, you know, in the the immediate period running out of election. It's absolutely astonishing. But anyway, but that's what I'm saying. This is broadly a political outgrowth of the print media. And the institutions they have are essentially those big papers. And I would say also some institutions, for instance, you know, the, 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 the British Legion or these kinds of local institutions, conservative clubs. I'd imagine a lot of conservative clubs, for instance, in the south where I'm from, a lot of them are sort of, sort of you know, tacit UKIP kind of uh, activists. I mean, it's a very soft activism, but they're peddling those kinds of messages within civil society. What kinds of institutions does the Green Party have? Uh, I'll answer your question in a second, but I, I, I slightly disagree with your analysis um, about UKIP first. Be the so, first one. Um, not, not hugely. I think it's right, but I think that you've got to take a step back and say that... UKIP are a product of um, capital's management of dissent. And that, you know, it, it's no coincidence that capital, yes, they use the mainstream media to channel anger t- towards 
divide and rule rather than towards the wealthy. And they also use UKIP to do that. Um, Can I just retort that? I mean, it's one of the, one of the specificities, let's say, of the US and the UK. In this country, the, the, you know, the US bourgeoisie is smart enough that the NYT and the Washington Post back the Democrats. You know, the bourgeois print press in this country, they think that Ed Miliband's a Marxist. You know, yeah. they're complete idiots. You know, that's essentially why the British capitalist class hasn't done a particularly good job at maintaining power during the course of the last hundred years, because they're idiots. But, um, you know, so that's, there's a big difference there, right? And the fact yeah. that the Labour Party was a party of government yeah. and not a single major paper, with the exception of the Daily Mirror, backed them in the last general election, that's really different to... Germany, France, the US, in terms of the print press and how quickly and to what extent they've sided with, you know, I mean, the Conservative Party, but now UKIP, right? Yeah. Well, you, you, you disagree with that? No, I agree with that. I, I just think that, um, that that is to a large extent a product of capital yeah. and, and capital operates differently in different contexts. And yeah, the British context is different as every context is, but, um, but it's capital that doesn't manage to dissent. And it, it's very clever. It's, you know, one of the greatest tricks that capitalism plays is telling angry people to blame their neighbour. Um, but, but to answer your question, which is what infrastructure do the Greens have? This is the absolutely crucial question, I think, for the party. So in Natalie Bennett's first, leader, first speech as party leader, what she said was, um, ask not what the trade unions can do for us, ask what we can do for the trade unions. And for trade unions, read any bits of the institutions of the potentially more radical left. And the Greens like to say that we are the electoral expression of a broad social movement. Um, and that might stretch from the unaligned, more radical trade unions through to the uh, some of the more radical NGOs, through to UK Uncut, through to Occupy and so on. Um, but we will only succeed where those movements think that of us. That's not, you know, that, that isn't just intrinsically true. That's only true where those links are actively worked upon. And as Natalie says, where the Greens do for them what they do for the Greens, you know, the, where, 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 where the Greens are acting on behalf of those movements and are shaped by those movements. Well, the Greens should see themselves embedded in that broad social movement. And the question isn't so much what is the social infrastructure of the Greens, but rather what is the social infrastructure of that broad, more radical left, that's most, that's of, of which the Greens are a political party. And the, and the answer is it's lacking hugely. You know, yeah. the answer is totally gutted in this country. Um, and, you know, you're asking exactly the right question. How do we, um, as a generation of, you know, relatively run, young radicals and, you know, anyone on the radical left, build up the infrastructure in this country that we need in order to combat the rise of the right, whether it's the capitalist centre-right or the further right, which I think is a construct of the capitalist centre-right. And, you know, for me, the Green Party is a part of the answer to that question. I think you do need an electoral expression of that. And you need one that's clearly more radical than Labour and able to hold Labour to account, to at least to an extent, and perhaps replace it, as we've seen in some European countries. Um, but you need other things as well. And so I suppose their point is that it's not that other things are the social infrastructure of the Green Party. It's that the Green Party is a part or should be a part of that broader movement. And that broader movement is hugely threadbare. You know, we, we, we're quite good at sort of replicating the Mandelson style media action. You know, we all go and sit in a shop for a week and we're very good spin doctors because we all get trained in that as, as young middle class people. And so, you know, we, we go and we sell UK Uncut for a few months. And that's great. And I mean, you know, I'm in favour of that. But the question is, what's the long-term infrastructure that we build? You know, the, the mass parties collapse, the mass trade unions collapse, the, the mass institutions of organised activism in this country were dismantled by the right because they understood strategically that it was more important to take out the institutions than it was to be popular short-term. 
So, you know, Thatcher was willing to go into battle with the trade unions, no matter how much it cost her short-term popularity, because she understood that beat the trade unions and she had the country, because it's the inst- institutions or politics, ultimately, that matter. And so the big question, I think the biggest question for our generation of the left is exactly the one you ask, which is, how do you build these institutions? That is a question for the Green Party too, I mean, but you, the Green Party is just a part of the answer to that question. Let's say, one way or another, Labour's in power um, come 2015, Yeah. And it's an austerity government, kind of in the which I've been saying for two years now. Well, well, be, we all, well Ed Balls has been saying too. Yeah, well, yeah, so well, that's what it's going to be. You know, doesn't really want to take power. But um, that was in the mould of the Hollande government that came in a couple of years yeah. ago. It'd be a big austerity government. Now, we're not, you know, most of deficit reduction is going to come from public sector cuts, like I think over 90% still. Yeah. Um, and that's something that's now legally binding as of the budget uh, in April. Yeah. So do you foresee, a, a, I'll ask you, Amelia, do you foresee the possibility of trade union funding coming to the Green Party? Um, I don't think it's impossible and obviously it would be fantastic to have those connections because we really are um, trying to work with trade unions and we've been um, standing up for the trade union um, movement, really looking to um, being a left-wing party, obviously have full faith in trade unions and we actually at the moment we fund ourselves purely through our members um, without funding from big business and trade unions so it would be a big trade change for us but um, I I don't think it'd be completely out of um, the realm of possibility. And I really hope that trade unions will start looking to Greens to be that political support for the wider movement. Because when you look at, was it on May Day in Clerkenwell, the sort of annual thing, there was a lot of Greens there, but I saw a lot of RMT members as well. And it begged the question, you know, I don't think the, the electoral, as much as I admire and respect the, the work of Bob Crow, rest in peace, um, I don't think that the, the sort of, what did they run? No to EU in 2009. I don't know. And so running again, is that him? Yeah. yeah, but I mean, that, that can't be that can't be electoral expression that a union as powerful as the RMT and potentially in the future the PCS or Unite would seek to, to work through if it wasn't Labour, surely. So, so there's some precedent. I mean, the RMT have said they'll find Caroline in Brighton um, and announced that at the party conference in Brighton last autumn. Um, I think that's just a local RMT, although I'm not sure. Um, the FBU have funded both uh, Patrick Harvey and the Scottish Greens and Darren Johnson, who's Queen That's London, the Fibergaze Union. Fibergaze Union, yeah. yeah. No, that's fine, no. Um, and, um, you know, so, so, so there are the beginning of those relationships. But, you know, PCS. I come back... The, the PCS haven't yet. I, you know, obviously would be in favour. Um, I mean, I think the important thing, though, is that... The important question for Greens is the one that Natalie asks. You know, ask not what the trade unions can do for us, ask what we can do for the trade unions. Um, first, that's the right thing to do at a time when working people are under attack in this country. The, what is the point of a party like the Green Party if we're not willing to be the ones who stand up and say, don't accept their divide and rule politics? That's mm-hmm. not the problem. But also because, you know, you can't complain. You know, solidarity is built through collective action. It's not just by having the right policies that trade unions will come to us. It's by working with them. It's by being on the picket lines. It's by being there day to day that we will build links with that broader movement, including trade unions, particularly trade unions. And, you know, maybe, yeah, funding will follow from that. But I'm almost less interested in the funding. You know, money, money yeah, follows I ideas. I don't necessarily mean money, but I mean sort of you know, institutional backing. That exactly, can mean money, yeah. it can mean people, it can mean office space. Well, exactly. You know, all so things. those things are vital. But almost more important than any of that is, you know, is that money follows ideas, money follows action. And resources follow ideas and resources follow action. And what, what matters is building those links to solidarity, first of all. And once you've got that, I think other things begin to follow. OK, I want to talk about the manifesto. Where can I find the manifesto online, the Green Party manifesto? It's on the website. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, if you go to the um, European elections section, there's, you'll see the mini manifesto. And then below, there's a link to the main one. So point two about a worker's right to buy their company. Yeah. 
How do you think that might work in practice? So um, I imagine that you'd have, so, and, and the policy says, you know, in the, in the rural party policy, I think, that the government would have, um, as the Scottish government has a fund for land buyouts in rural areas in Scotland, which you know, land in Scotland, in the Scottish right to buy legislation, includes things on the land, like the physical infrastructure of companies, where, you know, you have a right to buy it if it's for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, what, 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 what the Green policy suggests, um, what I call the right to cooperate, is that workers would have a right and through, the gov- through, through a government-established social investment bank the access to funds to buy out uh, any company uh, that they wish to buy. Now, um, there would be some debate to be had about whether that would include smaller businesses or any bigger ones. I'm, I, I'd probably more err on the co-op side and all of those things, but, um, but you know, it's a reasonable debate to have. Um, but, but the basic principle that you know, we, we have an economy which is controlled vastly and more than it has been since 1900 at least, uh, or at least since the 1920s anyway, by centralised private capital. And the question, what is the process of handing that economy to more democratic control? Mm-hmm. Um, and a part of that answer, I think, has to be saying, yes, the workers in the company are the people who produce the value in that company, um, and so they should have the right, if they so wish, to take control of it. Would it just be workers? Sorry, Minnie, you want to say? I was going to add, like, to the the whole kind of free... Like, the, there are additional impacts to the system that we've got at the moment. And um, in areas that you have cooperatives and you have these kind of different um, states of ownership, mm-hmm. um, people tend to be happier. And you've got, like, really bizarre statistics coming out, like domestic um, abuse goes down in areas where you've just got cooperatives. We've got the system that we're working on. That's correlative, not causal, though, obviously. But, yeah, I yes, get that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, no, I mean, I'm not sure it is. I mean, I think that there's a really strong case that co-op builds social solidarity. Yeah, there's higher social capital. It's yeah. the social capital that. I mean, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, go on, really. But I just there are so many issues surrounding by uh, the um, create our created by our current system that um, actually these kind of ideas create all kinds of different. Sorry, backtracking slightly. Um, we've got all these kind of additional impacts of the current system, and um, the, these changes. Who knows the what? what different impacts um, we can have as a result of, of making these changes. And um, if you've got... There are psychological impacts that we've got of the current system, the austerity um, the, um, restrictions that we've got at the moment have got huge psychological impacts of people because people, lots of people are out of work. You're looking at young people who, when you talk to young people on the street, they're suddenly saying, you know, I, I feel like I'm not even entitled to have dreams. Mm. And it's like the people saying the, the future's for the young, but what about my present? What about now? I'm like, I'm still living with my parents and I want a job and I want to get out. And we've got all these, what are the long-term social issues of this? Because we're creating these psychological problems. And actually by looking at different ways of working the system and empowering people by be, uh, giving them a right to buy their businesses, ensuring they've got homes. Hopefully we can ensure that we're not just um, directly influencing those, um, di- those social impacts, but then also the, the wider issues that we'll kind of hopefully, hopefully reduce. So this, this is what economists call negative externalities, you know? Yeah. One of the negative externalities <laughs> yes. of a particular policy will be you know, high rates of suicide or something. You're listening to Navara FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM. We were talking very briefly about the um, European Elections Manifesto that you offered. There's a, a, mini, a mini manifesto that's available on your website, am I correct? It's only 12 pages. Uh, I, would, I would very much recommend it. Much shorter than the last document I covered with Adam, which was the white paper on the Scottish referendum. Although there's also the full manifesto, which is 25,000 words, which if you want to have a read, you can. But it's not 900 pages, right? 
It's, it's not the, that's true. as the Scottish Air, which I've read cover to cover, uh, unfortunately. But we're talking about some of the points within it. So uh, I briefly touched upon this idea of a worker's right to buy their company. That was point two. I want to talk about point five. Rebuild the banking system into one which is made up of regional, cooperative and municipal banks, green investment banks and credit unions. And before I bring you guys in, uh, this is a specific call from the manifesto on that point call on the European Central Bank and the Bank of England to finance jobs building the infrastructure needed to deliver the transition to a low-carbon economy through a programme of green quantitative easing, align the lending of the European Investment Bank with the social and environmental aims of the EU and support measures to stop the European Bank for reconstruction and development financing fossil fuel, fossil fuel pro- projects and other environmentally and socially damaging projects and instead contribute to the financing of a zero-carbon revolution. I think these are really dramatic, interesting, important inspiring demands that you're making here. Adam, for listeners, what, what's so big about that, that possibility of perhaps even socialising, I mean, we might even talk about this as socialising credit and using it to more socially useful ends as opposed to seeking profit? Yeah, I mean, the simple question is, um, why is it that the bankers should get to be the people who decide how the surplus value created by all of us is invested in our future? And that is, I think, at core, the problem with our economic system, that it is the wealthiest elite who choose how we invest in our future. Um, and why, why shouldn't it be all of us through your democratic institutions who get to make those decisions? And if we do get to make those decisions, what will we do? Will we be investing in the derivatives market and in making houses more expensive? Or would we be investing in all those things, the, the architecture and infrastructure of a low-carbon, socially just economy? I, I think the latter, and I think that's exactly at the core of what we need to be doing as a society. I mean, I'll pick up from that. You're saying elsewhere in this mini-manifesto, only around 8% of lending by banks in 2010 went to productive investment. Now, I know listeners may be sceptical about what constitutes productive investment, but hold with me. Unless we change this, we can't mend our economies. The question is, how do we mend it? You've mentioned, well, I mentioned some of these measures. To me, that does seem to be bordering on socialising credit creation. Um, and you're saying that the transition to a, a greener economy, a more socially just economy, would require, would necessitate the creation of certain financial instruments or you know, socialising the credit in some way. You might see, for instance, things like poverty impact bonds or environment impact bonds or housing impact bonds, which are basically you know, establishing far more socially just uh, housing uh, ecology in, in the UK and in the European Union. So that's all possible. But I mean, and that's laudable. I'm all for it. In fact, I think a lot of smarter people in the financial press are for it. The question is, isn't that at odds with the classical role of banks and a financial system more generally within, within the capitalist mode of production, which is to allocate credit to ends that are expeditious for capital, i.e. profit? So, I mean, that's a really big, bold claim that you're saying to the ECB and to the Bank of England. And does that sit well with everybody in your party? Um, well, to, to answer your first question, is it at odds with capital? Yes. Um, that is a good thing, I think. Um, does it sit well with everyone in the party? Um, the party has had has had big debates about the role of credit creation in, in general, as has the more radical left, um, and I have strong views on that. But no, no one in the party has uh, has taken the position that we shouldn't be challenging capital to invest socially. There have been you know big debates around the creation of that credit and so on, and you know, as there have been across the radical left, but I, I've not seen any major current in the party argue against the core premise you highlight there, which is that we need to reinvest our surplus value into things which are socially and environmentally productive rather than necessarily the best profit for shareholders. So no one's there. saying anymore in the Green Party that the market can fix uh, this ecological crisis? Nobody's saying that anymore? Um, 
I, there, what I said, well, there's no major current in the party making that case. That doesn't mean that no one, you won't hear anyone say it. And, and of course, you know, the Green Party is a broad democratic party. And people obviously have, you know, as people do, views which I would see as inconsistent. So you might find someone making the case for some kind of market fix in one place and then, and then not in another. And, you know, that, that's normal across the left. Um, and, you know, that, that isn't, even, isn't even necessarily inconsistent. But certainly in the debate about finance and credit, and there has been a big debate about finance and credit, um, the only debate has been about creation. It's not been about, the, um, it's not been about whether we ought to be investing surplus value, investing you know, the, the production of society into transforming society into something that's more democratically accountable. I mean, here's another question here, you know, and this is out from elsewhere in that manifesto. Work for a tightening of laws banning irresponsible banking. All financial products should be screened. Those with no social purpose should be banned. I mean, that's the entire derivatives market. Yep. Right. So, I mean, is that, is that, again, is that Green Party policy then to sort of abolish the, the derivatives market at the European level, which, again, like you said, is the world's largest market. I mean, that's a huge step in the right direction. Yeah, it's a huge step in the right direction, as you say. I mean, um, you know, Greens Greens are, are very clear that we want to absolutely, you know, the the country is going, the economy is going in absolutely the wrong direction, and the derivatives market in two thousand and eight became the absolute symbol of that. And yes, of course, we should be radically transforming our economy. You know, we have an absolute crisis in the world, both of poverty, of inequality, and environmentally. And unless we're willing to get to grips with the core of this economy, which, as you say, a huge chunk of which, particularly in the UK, is the derivatives market, then, then of course we're not going to fix it. You know, when we are sucking all of the wealth created by people across the world and across this country away from anything productive and into gambling on a derivatives market, we are destroying the future of our country because we're not investing in a better future. We're not building tomorrow. We're gambling on yesterday. And so, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I have no qualms with saying that the derivatives market is a part of the problem. Amelia, I love that about um, building tomorrow. Um, that's, I mean, that's exactly what we're about. Is about that, that long-term thinking and making sure that we don't have reactive um, ideas, but actually kind of something really progressive thinking into the future. I mean, we've got so many issues at the moment, so um, we need to be looking beyond profits. So the derivatives market might be bringing in a lot of money, but what does that actually mean um, to the people on the street? And um, when you're looking at things like um, I, it was just last week that we were talking about how high prices have gone up. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that brilliant? But the reality is, who does that really influence? I know it doesn't. As um, it only helps people who have got those investments, and um, I so many people don't have that had investments in housing. Lots of us don't even have an opportunity to even. Um, hope to, to buy a house in the near future and even though especially kind of young people so going back to young people I do a, a lot of work around um, uh, the under 30s at the moment you've just and, graduated um, haven't you yes I have just yesterday yeah um, and um, yeah I mean for young people we don't even have an opportunity to think about buying a house and those who do have a house it means that their next house that they're going to buy has actually gone up in price so you've got th- these terms about increasing in the uh, the value of these investments what does it actually mean to you and me and to the people on the street it just benefits the few and not the majority okay so next point you know okay i, I think it's good to return to this because we talked about the difference between green party and ukip and me you said about policies and it's easy to dismiss policies when they're not accompanied by politics. But it's quite clear to me that just just reading those several points that it's you know the Green Party does have a, a set of policies that look pretty substantial when put against UKIP. I mean, it's I mean you know the farting trombone of UKIP policymaking really is quite astonishing. Here's the next one. I mean, because this is we're talking about monetary policy, we're talking about central banks. We're not talking about 
uh, you know, uh, a copy of the racing post and a pint of a bombardier in the pub up the road. Here's another quote here. Work for a tightening of laws banning... Sorry, sorry. Demand, sorry here's another, that's the last one. Another, there's yet another one. There's another two, actually, I've got here. Demand the European Central Bank prioritises unemployment alongside inflation in the setting of monetary policy for the euro. It's interesting, given we're not in the euro, the, the leverage that you could potentially have on that, but whatever. Whilst this doesn't directly affect uh, the UK, the impacts of masculine unemployment on our nearest neighbours are felt across the channel. So what's interesting is that UKIP are saying, look, we've got 26 million people after our jobs, the solution is to leave the euro. You're saying, well, actually, the solution is for the ECB to focus on employment as well as inflation targeting. Which is actually, I mean, it's a darn sight more useful. Do you want to respond to that? Sure. I mean, um, the Green Party of England and Wales has never been in favour of being in the euro. So that, that isn't a defence of the euro. Yeah. Um, and I suppose more broadly it's worth saying that a manifesto like this has to uh, bo- at once both be a long-term vision and also what MAP, how MPs are going to vote over the next five years on the issues that come up when we can't always set the agenda. So you've got a mix there of short-term things and long-term things. Mm. Um but, um, you know, so this isn't Green Party policy, but I, for one, am probably in favour of a slow dismantling of the euro. Um, yeah, I don't represent the parties, so I can say that. <laughs> but, um, but... What would you propose? National, national currencies? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't... I think it'd be up to people in the eurozone to decide those things. And, uh, you know, and that's why it's not in the manifesto. We don't debate it in the Green Party. It's up to them. But, but that's not... You know, that's my personal position. I don't think that setting monetary policy across the continent is sensible. Um, that's what the United States does now. Yeah, you and dis- I think it's... dismantle the dollar? Well, yeah. I, I walked up America once, um, from, from Georgia to Maine, okay. when I was 18, and, um, and was absolutely astonished to see the huge variety in prices of products across the states. And you think about what that does for interstate trade, for you know, the, the potential problematic effects of that. Um, and the fact that you know, Tennessee can't set the dollar for its agrarian exports. Um, It has to have the dollar set effectively for the financial markets of New York. I think that's a problem. Um, You know, I I don't think this is the most important question for American politics. No, no, but it's interesting that you can say that in public. Yeah, sorry. Or or for European politics. But but no, I mean, as as at least a short-term measure, you know, what what MEPs can do on the 23rd of May, if they're elected on the 22nd of May, um, making clear to the ECB that when you're setting monetary policy, taking into account only inflation targets which they've done since the well since the mid 1970s essentially this is what central banks have done done. you know um that that is obviously not compatible with a building the kind of economy we want to see and it's been hugely problematic would you say they should target wages as well yeah is that green party policy um i can't remember to be honest um greens have have yeah to be honest i can't remember but I mean, that's pretty. If you're saying that you'd abolish the derivatives market and that monetary policy should take into account unemployment and wages as much as inflation, that's really dramatic. I yeah. mean, that's 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 there with Syriza in terms of the kinds of policies you're saying in terms of how left they go. Yeah. So why aren't more people more leftists saying I'm going to vote green? So I think there's a really interesting phenomenon, um, and again, this is I think one of the great uh, tricks capitalism has played. Capitalism in the 21st century. century recognised at some point that one of the greatest threats to it was environmentalism, but also that it was going to be possible to uh, persuade people that environmentalism was a middle-class issue. And so there's been a process of channelling through which the Green Party of England and Wales, which has always been a radical party, you know, it was founded on the basis of radical democracy, of social justice, environmentalism and peace. You know, it was always a, move, a party that came from that broader movement. Um, there's been a channelling by the right-wing media, by capital and so on, um, towards this idea that the Greens represent a sort of liberal middle-class environmentalism, um, which the Greens sometimes believe of themselves, 
and sometimes repeat because that's how you know that's how we all get trained by the propaganda of, of capital to behave mm-hmm. um and um and so the result is that i think the greens are seen largely as you know and for understandable reasons as that party of environmentalist of a kind of middle class liberal environmentalism um and greens on the whole have worked hard to dispel that myth and i think i think that's the problem and the challenge that the Greens face. It's the, you know, three years ago, I was I was arrested in Fortnum and Masons, um, along with lots of people. March 26th. March 26th, yeah. yeah. And, and, and the Daily Mail ran a story about how I'm posh, which anyone who's met me or heard me on the radio will not be surprised to discover. Um, and, and what you saw there was exactly what they've done to the Green Party over years. You know, I was one person out of a few hundred. And, yeah, I'm quite posh, but lots of people there weren't at all. But what the media has done is say, is, is find the ways to explain to people that oh this party that should be radical it's really just you know these these tops who only care about these kind of abstract questions of environmentalism when in fact environmentalism is about the survival primarily of the most oppressed people in this country and in the world Mm. it was never a middle class issue it's been constructed by capitalism as such and the green party is never a middle class party in that sense it was always a radical party but it's been constructed by capital as such yeah we stand on picket lines and at demonstrations with all these different sectors of the left and have, I don't know, we've obviously shared um, beliefs about the system that we should be working in. And um, I hope that more people can really see, um, judge us by actions rather than the um, just the stereotypes that have fallen upon us because we are there in solidarity at all of these things. And um, I think we really prove our worth um, on the left through that. Adam? I um just just to tell another little story. I um, uh, Amelia and I both sound quite posh. I'm not going to j- guess your background, but um, but there was an amusing moment at um at Green Party conference this year when um someone came to the party afterwards. It was in Liverpool. Someone came to the party afterwards. He, he wasn't a party member, and we got chatting with him. A friend and I, a friend who was at the time or had just finished being co-chair of the Young Greens. And after he left, at some point he revealed that he was a member of Labour students. And after he left, I turned to my friend, and I said to him, Sam. At what point in the conversation did you work out that he's in the Labour Party? And Sam came back to me and said, it was when I realised he's the only person here posher than you, Adam. Um, internal party surveys uh, show the Greens have lower incomes on average than Labour Party members and, and you know, consistently. I'm presuming Conservative Party members as and, well. And uh, Conservative Party members and so on. You know, this, this idea that Greens are a middle class party and Labour aren't is, um, is, is absurd. question but, um, is UKIP members. Well, I don't know. Yeah, good question. And do you, I mean, what, would you, what would you say? Would you... I, I mean, my, my experience from canvassing, and obviously that isn't, you know, that's, a, that's only a very small subsample, mm. um, reflects what roughly both Nigel Farage and the polls say, not that I'd normally admit to Nigel Farage telling the truth, which is that um, there is a big working class vote for UKIP, and dismissing them purely as sort of middle class Tories um, is missing the point. You know, what they've done is, with the help of the media and capital and so on, they've channeled the anger people genuinely feel towards the divide and rule politics. Yeah. And, and that anger is felt across quite a big sub-sample society, including in quite working-class communities. Yeah, I mean, there was a gentleman I know in South London, uh, Jamaican. He was an electrical uh, engineer on the underground in the 70s, talked about going on strike, I think, for like 20 weeks or something in, in the mid-1970s. He's just retired. He was working as a probation officer with young people in Lambeth. Um, he's retired the same year that Serco... You know this this particular service has been outsourced to Serco, and you know politically disenchanted. Great guy, really inspirational. Um, and he's very yeah, very political. And so with one of the, some of these younger, primarily younger boys, he works with. He, he does sort of wind them up and try and rattle them with his politics, and it's good. And it's good to see what reactions they get. 
he gets rather. Um, but he was sort of, you know, chatting and he, he says, uh, you know, he was a Labour councillor, by the way, um, a long time ago. And, uh, you know, and he said, I hate Labour. Yeah, dreadful. I said, who, who else would you vote for then if you had to vote? He, he didn't say Greens. He said UKIP. And this is a chap who's Jamaican in Lambeth. So that's, and we're talking about a city where, you know, your, your neck of the woods, Amelia, mm-hmm. there's a city where, you know, UKIP, in terms of the mayoral elections, came fifth or sixth. Really astonishing that the Greens didn't register for him. I don't want to dwell on that because we've talked about it. Let's talk about the history of Green parties elsewhere in Europe because there are people who are dismissive of all the things you've said. They've said, look, you know, they've said it to me in the last several days oh, in response to this piece, 2,500 likes on Facebook. And these aren't people that are going to vote Labour or Lib Dem who've castigated it. They're people that aren't going to vote, really. And they're, so they're going to be hard people to win generally. But actually, that's somewhat representative of younger voters anyway. Uh, certainly the under-30s. And they've said, well, you know, the more informed ones, more politically uh, mature ones, have said, well, if you look at the history of the Green Party in Ireland, with regards to the, the budgets there in 2008 and nine, particularly 2008, I mean, one of the most dreadful bits of, of political recklessness by a party. I mean, you know, that, that term is used so frequently. But, I mean, that surely means they're unelectable for a generation, the Green Party over there. I mean, I don't know. It looks and, like they get two MEPs, but that surprises me enormously. Yeah, I mean, it really, I mean, this is the, the Lenahan budget, I think, in 2008. Summer. They, I mean, they halved job seekers' allowance for the under-20s. You know, it's astonishing. Stuff that con- the Conservative Party could never dream of. And that was with the assistance of a Green Party. Elsewhere in Germany, the Hartz reforms. Again, this fancy saying. Okay, mostly advanced by a German SDP, which, again, really doesn't seem fit for government anytime soon. But it was with the backing of Joschka Fischer's Green Party. So where the Green Party in Europe has been in power in the last 10 years, they've facilitated austerity. They haven't combated it. So that question, I think, is central to those people's concerns about whether they should vote in the next couple of days uh, for the Green Party, which is this. Is it going to be Syriza? Is it going to at least nominally identify itself in antithesis to austerity? Yeah. Uh, or is it going to go the same way as these other green parties in Europe, you know, in uh, in Ireland and Germany? So how would you respond to that, Adam and Amelia? Adam? So um, there are kind of two families of green parties in Europe who, you know, we, we collaborate, we work together, but there are kind of two families. There's sort of, there are green liberals and there are green left radicals. Um, and for every Irish green party, there's a Portuguese green party who associate with the communist parties. For every German one, there's a Catalan green party. And, you know, and, and, you know, we're aware so you of that say the debate. German green party isn't a left green party then? It's, it's a liberal green party. There are people in it who are on the left. Yeah. And, you know, it's been I, the most successful green party in Europe. So why? Sure. Yeah, go on. Um, but, but I think the more important point here is that what green parties across Europe represent is an electoral expression of a broader social movement around a general set of values. And... What you see across Europe is that those social movements equally have um, have had ended up with different politics, different reasons, and people have learnt different lessons from them. So what happened to lots of Greens, I think, in 2008, is you've got a generation of people who joined the social movement that's around at the time, which is the peace movement, the environmental movement, and so on, and they never really learned their economics. You know, how many people who were involved in the march against the Iraq war, how many people who were involved in you know, the, the social movements of the late 90s yeah. and early noughties? Um, had I ever had explained to them what kind of economics was, how, you know, understood the point of economics. You know, this isn't why people got involved in politics in 2001. And so what you had is all these people who, you know, understandably got involved in politics because they cared about all the things that radicals cared about in the late 90s and early noughties, suddenly finding themselves in government um, in, you know, in places like Ireland and Germany. And um, I think they made massive mistakes. I'm not going to defend those mistakes. But I think it's important to understand 
the the context of those mistakes and why it is they happen so they aren't made again and you know it's not you know the the, the success of neoliberalism up to 2008 was the political consensus and what that meant was that even people joining you know radical social movements were never trained they never learned any economics really it was never around economic questions that people were recruited and and you know that led to huge problems and i'm not you know as i say i was very angry with the german greens and the irish greens for what they did i'm not i'm not defending them but but that's the context. So you think that a lot of those mistakes are a consequence of those political formations coming out of social movements that didn't really have particularly coherent, solid politics? Yeah, exactly. And and I also, but the first point is also important, that there has always been, you know, it's a, it's a, the Green Party across Europe is a family rather than a united party. Um, and there are disagreements in that family. And, you know, um, and I think the Green Party of England and Wales, you can read the manifesto. Um, you can see Caroline Lucas very active in standing up against cuts. You can see other prominent Greens being very clear on their line on national cuts. You know, that doesn't mean there aren't mistakes, and I think there are mistakes made in Brighton. But, um, but if you, if we'll you get see, to that. We've got five minutes left. We'll get to that. Don't worry. You can see that you can see the arc of the party, and, and you know, judge, judge on that. Yeah, Amelia. And also, the party believes in devolution, and um, I think this is a. a basically a, a symbol of that that um, although we're part of this wider movement it's a gl- the environmental and social movement is a global movement and we can't move away from that and um, by being a united party on these issues then we do have more power but bring it back to the devolved level and making sure that um, you s- see the Green Party as the Greens um, Party of England and Wales um, obviously Scotland's actually already um, a separate Green Party um, then we stand up for the, the issues that are uh, the best voice for the people of Britain and um, as well as the united movement um, as a, working together as a united movement as well and I think that's quite important to, to remember um, and if you think on the kind of local level like what Jean Lambert's done in um, in London and f- providing such a strong voice, an anti-racist voice uh, um, a, a, a voice for different communities across the whole of London um, winning human um, humanitarian awards for the work that she's done I mean, that's a voice you want to vote for that's a voice you want in the European Parliament and if you don't vote for a voice like that you're going to get someone like UKIP who um, provides a complete alternative to that I mean, you said Jean Lambert I really admire and respect her work Jenny Jones I mean she condemned Milbank didn't she why should people who were so passionate about uh, you know the the whole student movement, the massive increase in tuition fees, a three hundred percent increase in tuition fees, justifiably huge anger. They destroyed, I think, quite magnificently the Conservative Party headquarters. I'm happy to go on record about that. I think it was absolutely just cause. It was great. I was there. <laughs> but I mean, that was condemned by Jenny Jones. There's clearly between Jean Lambert and even Jenny Jones, even at the higher institutional level, there's a great deal of discrepancy within the Green Party. People have to ask then, well, who am I voting for? Right? Yeah, Adam. Yeah, and I mean, um, in the European elections, if you live in London, you're voting for Jean Lambert. So that's what you'd um, say, you'd say vote for the candidate rather than... Um, yeah, and, and I also think um, it's the same point as before, you know, the Greens uh, recruit from and reflect a, a broader social movement that I think most people who listen to this show are involved in parts of. Um, and that social movement, you know, that, that's who we reflect. And, and yes, there are. I am frustrated by elements of that movement and therefore by elements of the party. But the alternative is you end up with uh, the sort of what you get on the more sort of statist Trotskyite left, mm. which is you always splinter every time you disagree with people. And that's, you know, I, I think that you shouldn't just always you know, take the Labour Party line and always accept. No, I but, agree I, but, I, but I also think that you need to say, you know, it, either, either you form a smaller and smaller party with the circle of people you always agree with, yeah. or you say, well, there's, you know, there's a line you don't cross. 
but inside that line and you, you recruit from whatever the radical politics of your day is and uh, and sometimes people involved in that politics will disagree with them on other things that you're not working on at that time and that's you know that's that's the social context in which we find ourselves in Britain today uh, I think it's right there is a political party which is an expression of that even the bits of it which I don't always agree with and um, of course that means that there are prominent people in the party you know, uh, whether it's Caroline Lucas or whether it's Jean Lambert or whether it's Jenny Jones, who I agree with on lots of things and disagree with on other things. And, you know, if people want to vote for a party they agree with on everything, then they're not going to. I there think we've barely got two minutes left to quickly talk about Brighton because this is where a lot of the concerns have been raised. They've said basically the austerity budget that was passed in Brighton in 2011, shortly after Greens took control of Brighton Council, reflects the same in microcosm. The same thing we see in Ireland with the Lenahan coalition government, we see with the uh, Hearts reforms in Germany, which is this, complicity with austerity, complicity with cutting the wages of workers in the public sector. Uh, so I mean, how would you respond to that? Healy's letter in Red Pepper magazine it was scathing about the role specifically of the leadership, not just in expediting austerity in Brighton, but also in terms of trying to silence and quell dissent within the party. And for lots of people who who want to vote green, I want to vote green. I, that's tough. That's tough to swallow. So how do you respond to events in Brighton? Both of you. So, so two things. Firstly, the 2011 budget, it's important to remember, the Greens proposed a budget which didn't include those cuts. They're a minority council. They, um, those cuts were forced on them by the majority Labour Tory councillors. Now, I think the mistake they made was not resigning at that point. I think once you don't check your budget, you're not really empowered just to shield for someone else's cuts. And that was a huge strategic mistake, I think. But, you know, it's important to remember this wasn't a council which went in and proposed a cuts budget. It was a council which went in and proposed a budget which was, you know, trying to resist those cuts and was forced by Labour and the Tories to accept them and then had a difficult decision to make and went to the trade unions, asked the trade unions at the time, what should we do? Do we stay in power or do we come out of power? The trade unions said, please stay in power because you're better than Labour and the Tories. And they did that. Now, I think that was the wrong decision and the trade unions made the wrong strategic call. But... You can see why they made it. You know, listen to the workers. They did. They did what they were asked to by the workers at the time, and they've ended up with a big mess down the line. And, you know, I think that's a lesson for Greens to learn, but condemning a party for staying in power because the trade unions yeah. to. But specifically this, trying, this attempt by the leadership at the time, not Lucas. Right. This is before Natalie Bennett took control. This in 2011, so Lucas was still in charge. Who, who, was, who was silencing that dissent then in terms of... Uh... So, I mean, I, I was very vocal in disagreeing with him at the time. No one told me to shut up. I didn't experience any silencing. Yeah. Um, for, for me, the the question in parties is always, how do you manage power? You know, because you can have a party that's as good as possible when it's in the position of the Greens. How does it, you know, how does it develop a culture that when it gets, if it gets more power, that it stays radical? Um, the thing that heartened me most about this was I, di- I didn't feel pressure. No one had a word with me and said you stop doing that you know i was i was vocally disagreeing with them in public on twitter and so on they you know the people i was criticizing came back and responded to me mm. but no one ever said how dare you criticize the party in public Amelia, any thoughts on bryson we've got uh, um, a minute left i mean i think it's one of those tough situations where um as adam said the conservatives and labor were in coalition against the greens which has forced the greens into this particular situation and I mean, there are so many positives that have come out of Brighton. It's like one of the um, areas that I believe it hasn't had any library cuts. It might be one of the only um, only constituencies in the country that hasn't had any library cuts. That Brighton Pavilion, is it? Um, well, across the, the, city, whole, yeah, the whole city. Um, that actually we've we've done a lot of stuff about around um, the living wage, and we've. Um, 
we're now doing next steps into um, a, a kind of referendum around um, the um, around around the cuts and giving um, increasing pe- democracy by giving local people the opportunity to see what's happening in their area and saying this is the situation we're in. You've got a voice. Use that voice to make a decision to help us make this decision over what happens next because they have been forced into. Um, a, a problematic scenario, but as a result of the budget, and um, and giving that the, that democratic right back to the people, so they are completely aware of what's happening. I think is a real powerful move by the Green Party. Okay, well, on that note, I'm going to have to wrap up. Thank you for joining us, as ever. I just like to say, listeners, for the second half of the show, we were standing up in Studio Two. I felt a little bit like the front cover of Craig David's Born to Do It. You know, with Adam and uh, Amelia both with their headphones on. Thank you very much. Especially on the fact that Amelia graduated yesterday. Hasn't shown any signs of a, a hangover. Incredibly responsible young person. I certainly wasn't like that. Thank you again. Um, you're listening to Navarra Media. See you same time, same place next week. Thanks. Bye.